This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Roma, and we're going to talk about class in the 21st century. That's our theme. Helen, kick us off. Okay, so I decided not to write like a written piece this week because I started one, and then I was like, Actually, I have two, I have always like a too strong a reaction to this that to be contained in like in a thousand word organized piece of writing. <laughs> but I almost feel like I should just make a few statements about why I think um, this film is something that might touch a nerve for a lot of people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a very beautiful, very charming film. I've only ever watched it on my iPhone. I've watched it two or three times on my iPhone because of you know Netflix, of course. So I'm maybe not getting the full impact, the aesthetic impact that I would have done if I saw it in a cinema. So that's maybe um, just something on the side of the film. The side, you know, the side of this aesthetics are probably very, you know, they are very nice. But then on the, on the ethics side, um, it's something that almost is quite discombobulating to the viewer. And I think it has to do with there being a contradiction within the film between truth. Film is obviously a very, can be a very realist medium. And this is a film that has a, a camera that is very inert. It doesn't get involved in the melee, so it's just there watching. So truth can kind of um, be played out in these sort of lengthy scenes. And we have a, uh, a maid working for a wealthy family in Mexico City. So there's certain things, certain tensions, certain, you know, inevitable issues related to class when somebody is a servant emerge in terms of what is being played out in terms of the truth, the objective facts, quote unquote, of the story. But this contradicts immensely with the perspective, I think, of the filmmaker. And it's kind of, it's weird because it's doing these two things at once where we have these blatant events where class contradiction plays out. But then almost the sort of perspective or the um, overlying ideological sort of, I don't know if it's even a, even it is an ideological perspective, but I, I, we, I think it's clear that the perspective is that this is a lovely, angelic, little simple soul who, by dint of being um, a lovely, angelic, little simple soul, is a lovely servant who's lovely, you know, who's war, uh, warm and and engaged with the family and it's a lovely little you know ribbon tied bow on this um familial scene so in terms of yeah this truth playing out because of the nature of the medium this truth of class contradiction you know is there to be seen so for instance the final scene where she saves the children cleo saves the children from drowning um, and the final shot is of this sort of, um, was well, not the final shot, the final shot of this scene is, um, it's almost like a saintly embrace of her with these two, with the children around her and they're all, you know, loving and she, she saved the day and she loves this family so much and they love her so much and she saved them. But she can't swim. You know, she's in this situation where she can't swim and even the children say she can't swim. And she goes out and risks her life because she has no other choice. You know, what's she going to do as an employee but risk her life in order to save the children's life? Who, who disobeyed her probably because she doesn't have the clout as a, um, as a working person employed by the family. So the children don't respect her in the way that perhaps they would respect her fa their father or something like that. So she's put in this position where she has no choice but to, but to save them. She has a stillbirth, which is very traumatic. 
And then they say, oh, come on holiday with us, come on holiday with us. Of course, she has no choice but to go on holiday with us, with uh, with them. Within the film's um, story, she seems to enjoy it and what have you, but she's still in the role of the servant on this holiday. They're treating her to a holiday. But are they really treating her to a holiday or is she just the skivvy being brought along because they need a servant to be there whilst they're on holiday? Yeah, so they say thank you all the time to her. They're so kind. But this this is just a way of repressing the class contradiction, the, the contradiction of exploitation. Um, when the father is there earlier on in the film, the family sits around the television set and they're all sitting arms around each other. But Cleo, of course, can't sit on the sofa. So this is this is the truth being played out, that she's part of the family, but not really. They can be all kind of nice and caring and say they're going to keep her on when she has a baby. But She's always on the outside and she isn't, you know, specially treated. She is she is a servant. And I kind of find I really do like Alfonso Cuarón films in general. Um, we did a, a film. Um, gosh, the name of it is uh, slipping my mind, maybe on my previous podcast. And part of I think what works in that film is the inertia of the camera. But in this one, it's kind of annoying because you just, it just sort of patronizingly and uh, placidly pays out watching this sort of irritating dynamic where it's like, this is all a lie. Um, but she's being treated in such a way where the class contradiction is being papered over. But really, we can see that it is all just, um, you know, the usual rubbish. The, there are these imagined conversations played out between the two servants that really evoke the fact that this innocent, lovely, you know, meek little lady, um, you know, it doesn't feel any resentment in her position, but sort of sees it as natural. And she's the perfect servant because of her personality. She even says when um, the couple needs to switch their light off at nighttime because the lady of the house will get annoyed with the light being on. She says, Cleo, oh, she's looking after us. Uh, the other servant says she's, she's going to be watching us. And Cleo says she's looking after us. She's looking after us. And she, she's this character that plays these ridiculous juvenile games that I think are unrealistic for someone for her, of her age. It's this very, frankly, racist, patronising, um, simple soul uh, issue that she is somebody who is, you know, in an Orientalist kind of way, this magical, meek little character who sits in her position so well. And this actually, I think, was played out. I literally couldn't believe it happened. But in the scene where she goes to look for um, Fermin to tell her to tell him that she's pregnant, and he's doing his martial arts training, and the leader of the martial arts, arts um, training session strikes a pose where he holds this sort of yoga pose with his eyes closed, and it's really difficult, and nobody quite do, can quite do it. At the end of the scene, the camera rests on Cleo, and of course in her perfect spiritual balance, in her unblemished soul, as an uncomplicated, juvenile, childlike little character, she holds the pose. And I, I just I just think it's so patronizing. It's so patronizing in a way we've talked about so many times, that this patronizing um, vision of the other who is simple, who is unblemished, who is non-contradictory, is just racist. There's um, another point that I think really ties into a lot of the issues with the way that class is papered over by a lot of quote unquote leftist movements of the 21st century, things like contemporary um, movements in feminism, where the woman of the house says, we women have got to stick together. And I sometimes think this is, um, we see this in, in many different ways, how class antagonism is uh, 
sort of erased or, you know, aesthetically erased by different forms of non-emancipatory essentialisms. And I sometimes think this is the case in terms of an immigrant. You see people, you know, blue check Twitter people potentially, who might say in their bio, immigrant. Um, but there's a, very, there's a big difference between being an upper class immigrant, you know, uh, somebody who's paid to come to university in the UK or in another Western country or who can afford to move there and get a middle class job or some kind of professional job. And an immigrant who's working in this kind of service job like Cleo. Um, yes. I think that this film is so aggravating potentially just because it's like the, the filmmaker is uh, thrust before his eyes is the reality of what he's depicting. And yet, even though it's right there on the screen, the perspective denies the actual antagonism and papers it over with a kind of very racist, very patronizing spiritual Orientalism. All right. Nina, you're up. Yeah. Great. I agree with uh, a lot of what Helen's saying. Um, I Yeah, I, I found this film really incomprehensible um, aesthetically, politically and narratively, let's say. I think, you know, in terms of it being a portrayal of a particular period in Mexican history in the early 70s, it was not, uh, I mean, maybe you know, clearly it wasn't intended to be. It's a kind of personal memoir of this, you know, uh, nanny or nurse or, you know, um, maid. Um, but the context is these kind of, uh, you know, political turmoil, particularly around the student, student shootings and so on. Um, but you don't really kind of get a sense of that. Um, I found it kind of incomprehensible why any of the characters did anything. In fact, it wasn't really clear to me what their, why they were doing things in a way that made me feel like I was an alien. Um, I suppose, like, why did the, the mother keep crashing the car? It seems bizarre. And and why did they sort of keep driving the car into the side of things? Um, and why did no one sort of clean the hall with the dog mess? It seemed to be absolutely incomprehensible given how tidy the house was. Um, <laughs> and, I, yeah, I suppose I just, you know, there wasn't the kind of character development that would make these things kind of quirks or um, they were just sort of blank uh, things that happened or didn't happen. And... I suppose there is this kind of, you know, yeah, deep, deep superficiality to the film in that sense, not only on the question of class and, and um, the performance of class and the question of race and this idea, the kind of, yeah, making an angel of the Cleo character, um, just the kind of absolute um, opaque quality that she exhibited. And actually, I thought there was something even a bit sinister about the way in which um, Quiron, who who is very good at filming animals, right? And if you watch Children of Men, he, um, which is, you know, the only other film of his I know very well, he is brilliant at filming animals there, actually. He films Britain from an outsider's perspective, and it's an incredible vision of Britain. And it, that it, that includes the burning pyres of animals, which if you grew up in the countryside like I did, you will remember from the various crises of foot and mouth and, and so on. And you got used to seeing these pyres of burning animals and Curon has those in Children of Men. And here he and, and also the kind of way in which nature returns. So in Children of Men, like it, the, the animals start roaming the cities because there's no more humans being born and and he's very very good at that kind of image of a post-apocalyptic re-animalizing of the 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 metro metropo, metropolis and i think here what he does with animals is very very strange like he 
it, it's a kind of contrast between the living and the dead. So you have the dog, which is very active and barking and pooing everywhere. And, you know, it's this kind of constant live force, which is largely the the domain of the maid, of Cleo, and the other woman who works in the house. And then you have all these stuffed animals, these dead animals, and he often holds a scene on the eyes of dead animals. So the the animals that have been um, taxidermied. Um, when they go on a trip and they're shooting and there's a, the place where they stay is filled with stuffed animals and they make a kind of point about this. And he also films lots of sculpted animals. There's a sculpted fish and there's a hippo or rhino at a certain point. And he's, I mean, it's clearly very, very deliberate. And there's he seems to be making some kind of unconscious, perhaps, tie between what is living and what is dead and what can be um, understood and what can't and it seemed to me that he was placing Cleo on the side of the incomprehensible like on the side of the animal which goes even further into this kind of really like sinister almost portrayal of her as this uh, human that is somehow not human in the way that the bourgeois characters are that she's positioned always somehow between the living and the dead um, between uh you know a kind of human being with feelings and one without and between a kind of animal and human in a way and it there's something kind of weird and sort of menacing about about that I thought um yeah and I I I, there was an interesting review of the film by somebody uh Richard Brody I think in the New Yorker which which drew out some of these questions not the not exactly the ones we're talking about about class and uh, to some extent about class but not the ones about animals or the life and death aspect but I think he makes the point that there's not you know that this is supposed to be a tribute to somebody but that that he doesn't that the director doesn't get anywhere close to to this idea or this image of the woman, even though she's on screen a lot, which I suppose from a quantitative point of view makes it seem like it's a film about her. You know, that, oh, we're seeing this bourgeois family. Normally cinema would focus on the bourgeois family and the servant will be in the background. But look, if we just switch the time allotted, you know, somehow it becomes a film about the servant and the bourgeois family in the background. But that doesn't really happen. Um, and it doesn't really you know, go into what the nature of her work is. It doesn't provide the political context. There's some discussion about the land dispute, that her where she's from, the land is being stolen. But you don't you never find out anything more about this. You know, this is just an incidental detail, like her mother's been moved house and, and you know, she's she's just like, whatever. It's like I don't think that's how you would react, actually. You know, if your your mother was being like <laughs> dispossessed, um, you might go back and fight or whatever. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's just very strange. So yeah, I think I think a very odd film. I think it's designed aesthetically to appeal to a kind of middle class uh, audience who uh, enjoy uh, quality adverts. Um, you know, there's something kind of very slick and you know, again, a little bit um, well, very superficial about the 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 style of the film and. Yeah, I I just found it over overall just bemusing. Like, why even make this film in a way? Hmm. All right, now I'm up. Roma is set during the era of Mexico's dirty war, a Cold War clash between the U.S.-backed PRI regime and left-wing guerrilla groups. But it's not really about this conflict. Instead, it's ostensibly about the life of Cleo, an indigenous live-in maid. Cleo isn't politically engaged. 
She isn't part of the conflict, so the dirty war rages around Cleo and occasionally disrupts her life. From her perspective, the conflict is just random violence, so we learn very little about the conflict. It's largely in the film to generate dangerous situations for Cleo to navigate or witness. Instead of focusing on the economic antagonism driving the dirty war, the film focuses on the relationship between Cleo and the mother she works for. Cleo and the mother are both oppressed by men. Cleo gets pregnant and is abandoned by her lover. The mother's husband abandons her and her children. The shared experience of being abandoned by men pushes Cleo and the mother together. The dirty war is senseless violence, but the conflict between men and women is taken seriously. The employer and the employee are on the same side because they are both women who have been betrayed by men. At the end of the film, Cleo saves two of the children from drowning, and the family gives her a big hug. We get a feel-good message about the relationship between affluent women and the maids they hire. If the affluent women show appreciation for the maids and treat them with respect, the economic relationship between the mothers and the maids is no big deal. It doesn't matter that the maid isn't being paid enough to comfortably have a child of her own. When the mother finds out that the maid is pregnant, she takes her to a doctor for medical advice. This act of feminine solidarity is what matters to the film, and it completely eclipses the class antagonism. The dirty war is treated as just another cruel, stupid male fight. The director, Alfonso Cuaron, grew up with a maid like Cleo, and he based this film on her life. As a rich film director from a professional class family, Cuaron has a strong class interest in rationalizing the relationship his family had with the maid. The film is ostensibly about the maid's perspective and female solidarity, but it is really about making Cuaron feel better about the fact that his family hired someone to take care of him and paid her so little that she feared having a child of her own. There are increasingly more and more affluent families who hire live-in maids. These families rarely pay the maids enough for them to support families of their own. The maids are expected to live vicariously through other people's children. They are expected to love those children as if they were their own. In Rama, the maid puts her own life in danger to save other people's children, and in return she receives nothing more than respect. The father treats the maid in a disrespectful way, and for this film that's the only thing that's wrong with the way he treats her. I am reminded of a mini-series about Julius Caesar. It came out in 2002. It starred Jeremy Sisto, Richard Harris, and Christopher Walken, among others. There's a subplot in the miniseries about a Greek slave. Caesar hires a Greek named Apollonius to tutor his daughter Julia. Julia and Apollonius get on very well and have a relationship that seems mutually loving. But during Spartacus's slave revolt, Apollonius leaves to join the rebels. When the Romans recapture the slaves, Julia discovers that her teacher is among them. She pulls strings to get him released, but he refuses to go. He says, You have grown into a fine woman, intelligent, full of everything that makes the Romans great. But I am not a Roman, Julia. I am a slave. Freedom is not something you can be given. It's something you have to take. Julia says she would have had Apollonius freed years ago if she knew it would make a difference to him, but she never thought it would matter, because it felt as if he were free, as if he were happy and part of the family. He acknowledges that they had happy times together, but says he's seeking dignity. You have been good to me, you have been my family, but they are my family now. We both know where we belong, and I belong in there with them. He stays with his fellow slaves and shares their fate. The miniseries is a 6.7 on IMDb. It's flawed in all sorts of ways, but it's much better than Roma. 
In the Roman Empire, successful aristocrats would often buy their wet nurses and tutors houses and give them pensions. In the modern West, the children raised by maids lack even these traditions. They offer their respect and affection, and that's meant to be enough. They expect the maid to buy into the self-serving narrative that other people's children are as good as one's own. If she does, she'll be thanked and nothing more. They never reckon with the fact that their parents exploited the poverty of these maids. The maids were denied a wage which would give them a real choice about their lives. They were forced to live in fear of being fired for tiny indiscretions. The relationship between the family and the maid was one of domination. This fact is true no matter how much they love their maids, no matter how many hugs they give them, or how many films they make about how much they respect them. Class is always there, no matter how much we try to pretend life is about other things. Yeah, you know, it's it, talking about, and you know what you were saying about the, the animals and the living dead and alive and dead. See, there's the, the Hegel quote of um, the birth of the word is the death of the world. So when we are, we become humans by being separated from our mothers and develop language, that's when we become humans and then the world becomes dead to us. And these sort of like one dimensional patronized little angel figures of the East or of the indigenous variety or whatever are just undifferent, you know, that the, the vision of them is this undifferentiated being who isn't really human and it's absolutely gross. Well, yeah, I've just recalled, you know, there's that scene where the, they say, Oh, Cleo's gone mute. You know, like there, she barely speaks as it is, right? But there's almost like to go along with what you're saying, the the kind of mute animal angel is like the one who can't speak. You know, who who sort of doesn't really enter into language, you know, yeah. and, and therefore is sort of pure, you know. Yeah. And there's even that yeah. scene that kind of portrays her as as a sort of mute temporarily. Absolutely, and and also that you know that the fact that she's speaking, it's as if this. The indigenous language that they're speaking is classed as some, or I don't know if it's indigenous or sort of like a Creole or something, but you know, that the, the children are like, speak Spanish, speak Spanish. And it's almost as if that that language doesn't count. And you know, it's like, she's a bilingual person, obviously, so she's very much within language, but like, even when she's speaking these two languages, because it's not, it's sort of, it's, it's there for sort of this aesthetic thing of like, oh, look, we're putting this special language. And even this title at the beginning of the film, that's like, you know, the mestizo language or whatever it is, I'm getting that wrong, is uh, subtitled in a special way. And it's like, you know, as if just, as you say, the inclusion, like, quant you know, quantitatively shifting the the focus on something as if like representation, you know, by it, of its own thing is going to actually change anything, you know, just just by shifting the focus on something is going to change something. And it's like, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean that's why, in a way, the Todd Solon's depiction of the maid in previous weeks in storytelling yeah. is maybe more, you know, it's more honest because it's more brutal. I mean, at least there, the maid is depicted, you know, working hard, having a terrible life, being kind of insulted and abused by the child of the family, and then that then fired, and then getting her revenge, you know, and like this is a much yeah. more <laughs> like, you know, I don't know, humane depiction actually exactly. of somebody in that position rather than the as Benjamin, you know, kept saying the the hug, you know, the hug is supposed to like redeem the you know, the position. It's like you know, it is it is Akambenian, you know, who's the sort of included, excluded in that way. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's it's even more aggravating that these people clearly believe the hug is supposed to make it all okay. And what's more insulting than being exploited and dominated and then given a hug and told that you're that means you're supposed to be fine with it. 
or in this case, given a film and being told that means you're supposed to be fine with it. There is something about, you know, you were saying, Benjamin, about the fact that, you know, she's she's exploited to the extent where she's not paid enough to be able to sustain herself on her own. And so this whole anxiety that emerges when she has a child and, you know, she's not wanted by Fermin when she has a child, either presumably, you know, the, the financial constraints um, contribute to that dismissal by him. But when her child, and this maybe relates also to what you were saying, you know, when, when she has the stillbirth, she doesn't react. So, that, you know, it could be read of like, oh, she's just devoid of emotions in a certain way, or she has no personality, but also maybe potentially that she's relieved because of her, um, because of her financial position. You know, it's, 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 it's something that the, the, the problem solved. She sort of says that in the, after the drown, you know, the near drowning episode, again, which makes no sense, but, um, the, <laughs> um, where she sort of says, you know, I didn't want it or something or. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, which again is sort of a bit confusing, you know, like, okay. I, I don't know. I didn't understand any of these characters at all. I just thought they were like, made no sense. And why did the father, why did the father just sort of like disappear? And why was he running around like a teenager? It was very strange. I think Quaron himself doesn't understand the characters because it's based on a child's perspective on this family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I often think though, I found when I'm trying to narrativize something that's happened to me, it's, you know, you get these very, um, you know, in, in recent years, these fictionalized versions of young women's lives. You know, you have the Caitlin Moran thing, the Lena Dunham thing, there's all sorts of films, the, the flea bag thing, the phenomenon. But I actually find like, I personally can't do it because anytime I've tried, I'm like, I don't even know what I think. And this is, you know, to go on about psychoanalysis for the nth time, like, this is why it works. Like, you can't, we're, we're an invested party. If you're trying to get truth out of something, you know, the invested party's perspective. And also, like, re- reality is, is confusing. And one can be objective, potentially, in a made-up scenario <laughs> for when it comes to, how can you get the truth out of it? There's so many times I've tried to narrativize so many things, including experiences working in a family setting like this. And I can't do it. Because I, it's just, I can't get the, like, purchase But on this it. is where abstraction and these things come into play, right? Because if we're talking on some, you know, like about real abstraction, if we're talking about class, you need an aesthetic method. And this is that, the, 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 you know, in a way deals with the, um, the antagonisms, right? And this is, in a way, the struggle of political art on the left, right? Whether we're talking about constructivism or, I mean, Jean-Luc Godard tries to do this in um, British Sounds, and um, which, you know, and the Schrader in Blue Collar, you know, in a way, how to depict the real struggles of workers in a medium that is itself designed to pacify and to be consumed, you know, without sort of minimising, therefore, the antagonisms and the abstractions inherent in the you know, capitalist wage relation, right? It's very, very mm-hmm. difficult to do. Whilst, yeah. you know, and how do you therefore make a film that's also politically mobilising, let's say, at the level of its, of, its, of its aesthetic form? And that's why I think, you know, the superficial, rain-pouring, beautiful Guinness advert, car advert aspect of this is is integral to its, you know, the, to the whole thing of it, right? Like, it's it makes... Um, things look beautiful and then but but therefore unsaid like we don't know anything about how much she's paid really or what what the relation is exactly we don't know anything about the political situation at all like it's you know I mean I agree I think it's stuck in the child 
perspective. But it's odd that he, as an adult, couldn't... Yeah, I mean, maybe it is the psychoanalytic problem. Like, he can't get any distance. Like, he's just repeating the story with a lot of money, as he would have told it at the age of 10. And I think this is part of the thing that's so aggravating, that I found so aggravating in terms of, like, the perspective. It's like, it's right there in front of your face. You're doing these long takes, you know, but by definition, these antagonisms are playing out because even if, it, let's say it is realistic in terms of the child's perspective, there's still th- things that are these antagonisms. And yet the choice is just to sort of irritatingly ignore it, you know, <laughs> or, or just, as you say, wash it away, the bucket of water on some lovely paving and sweep it away like dog poo. Well, I think so often when artists and writers go into their childhoods, the purpose of going into the childhood is to feel better now about your life and about your situation. And I think that's what this film screams. This is a man who on some level feels unsettled by the way his family related to the maid and is trying to feel better about it. And I think that a lot of this is a kind of self-flagellating thing where, look, he's made the movie all about her. He's made the movie about how great she is. He's made her the focal point of the movie as a way of making up for the fact that she, of course, was never the focal point of her own life because she was always just part of his story. And because it's all about trying to make himself feel better about having not just participated in, but having been raised through a fundamentally exploitative relationship of domination, who he is is a product of having been raised largely by a maid. So who he is reflects at its core a relationship of domination. And I think, therefore, he feels that he's kind of born with this sin, which he wants to expunge by making this film about how wonderful the maid was. Mm -hmm. And making it so beautifully as well. I think that's right. I mean, you know, but you could have a non-guilty relation to this setup right I mean nobody chooses where they're born or who their parents are in a way like you know yes we're all born into relations of uh, dependence and domination and exploitation and history I mean this is one of the major problems of politics today is the mobilization of guilt ineffectively well it's actually very effective at preventing genuine political analysis and struggle right because if you make if you pathologize everything and you say oh yes well you should feel guilty for being white and you know something something ancestors even if it wasn't your ancestors nevertheless somehow <laughs> you know that you know that the idea of some sort of uh, inherent taint or stain and obviously you know the the big discussions playing out around critical race theory in in the states in particular at the moment um but in any case, whatever the guilt is supposed to be, um, it just it doesn't, you know, it's it's um, it's a kind of anti-politics. I mean, there's that line, yeah, absolutely. In, that line in Marx where he says shame is already a kind of revolution. And this is like the only time he sort of, I think, talks about shame or guilt. And they're slightly different things, obviously. And I it'd be maybe we've talked a bit about shame and guilt before, I think. But, you know, like shame is the it's something that ad- adheres to you or the I, you know, it's something indelible. It's something to do with a fundamental corruption, whereas guilt is usually about an action. It's like, oh, that's not really me. Like, I was out of character. I did a stupid thing for which I can apologise or make amends. But but shame is, like, integral. You can't really get rid of shame. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, 
how I mean, can you mobilize these things for political ends or will they always be used against you? I mean, this is kind of Nietzsche's question in the genealogy as well, I think. I think think, the answer is, oh, you want to go ahead? Well, all I was just going to say, because I think maybe you will be able to talk to it more on a political level, is there's in um, the phenomenology, the last passage, I think it's before the self-consciousness section is about on sin. And it's different from the religion section. So sin, it's basically like the development of sin as a technology to basically deal with the discomfort of antagonism. So you can just whip it, you know, if you can whip yourself, then you don't have to actually do it. You know, it's a, it's a real cathartic release that prevents actually engaging with the antagonism that is integral to being human and also to human societies. So, yeah, I think it is just a release valve that doesn't end anywhere. But Benjamin probably has something more political to say about it. Well, yeah, I, I'm thinking, I think that guilt and shame are painful. I think they're painful to experience and that when people feel guilt and shame, what they're usually motivated by is a desire to get rid of it. So what you tend to get are efforts to re-enchant, efforts to find a way to legitimize the situation, especially when it's a, something from the past that you can't really change. There's an effort to re-legitimize it in some way, to find a way to make it okay, make the fact that it happened okay. And this tends to result not in politics, but in kind of, as, as you say, self-flagellation displays aesthetic displays of just how much we care about the people that we hurt or our ancestors hurt or whoever it is that we're associating ourselves with hurt. And I think that's what is so disturbing about this film is that its purpose is clearly to make Quaron and the people who love this film, many of whom are also raised by maids, feel better about this mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. them having to do anything substantive to rectify the relationship. This idea that if if a hug really makes it better, if the if the fact that you love and respect the maid can really make it better, then you don't have to feel bad about it. If you can imagine that maybe the maid really did live for you and really did want to just live for you and really did love you and really did care, and that that's all that she was, was just this person who was there for you, then you can love her because she's rendered entirely selfless, right? And then you can go, well, we just found this amazing person who was entirely selfless, and therefore we didn't take advantage of her because what other role could she have performed? This is the role for which she was made, right? And in this sense, she becomes a kind of Aristotelian natural slave. She's naturally Mm -hmm. made for this family by her very nature. And therefore, how could she have realized herself in any better way in any other context? Yeah. Right. And then all you all you have to do is be grateful. Be grateful that you were blessed with this with with being gifted a person who was naturally perfect for your needs. It's so vile. I, I think you're absolutely right about the the kind of quasi Aristotelianism of, of it. Um exactly. I, that was sort of coming you know, bubbling up in my mind too. And also the another thing it reminds me of is, I don't know, I've been, been reading some advice columns lately, which is not something I normally do, but for some <laughs> reason there have been some really funny ones in the newspapers lately. And I suppose like a perennial one is um, like a heterosexual couple, you know, maybe married or they've been together a long time. And one of them wants to, you know, bring a, another woman in for a sort of some sort of sexual you know, frisson or something like this. But in the but the the kind of the the huge one of the the, the really 
weird things about this fantasy and it's a very common fantasy right like the heterosexual couple either from the man or the woman or both right it's like oh i know let's get another woman in and we can have like two, you know a man and two two women who wouldn't want that but the thing is the fantasy of the other woman like the the random other person like who is this person who for some reason just wants to have sex with a married couple um and will demand nothing of them and is purely uh, a sexual being for who has no feelings whatsoever and w- will, you know, preemptively somehow respect the existing relationship even though they're not sort of being faithful to one another, which is fine, no no morality here, but no moralism. But you know what I mean? Like, it's this kind of, who is this third person? Like, this image of the purely selfless sexual person for whom this yeah. experience, you know, who, who will be part of this experience. It's like... They don't exist as a human being, right? They just exist as a, like a mirage. A fantasy. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think this is this is precisely what um, OnlyFans does. You know, it's but it, it requires a transaction because the transaction then it denies the existence of the fact that the other doesn't want to have sex with you or that the other subjectivity is messy. You know, you 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 pay somebody to avoid this reality that you're talking about that that person doesn't exist who freely wants and this is the thing it's like you know free you know any kind of service job you know you're paid to act as if you really want to be there you know and it's just, it's um but th- there was something about um talking about this sort of maybe the the, the failed marriage you know or f- you know wanting wanting something that can that can spark something new i and maybe relating to also what you're saying you know about about these sort of like nonsensical characters that are all bland like she's particularly bland and angelic and I think sort of dead um and you know the the other characters have various outbursts which maybe gives them a bit more like vital energy but the husband I think the husband is this really facile character who basically serves to mainly cover over the class antagonism because obviously the more convenient antagonism is just patriarchy or men are dicks so you know when when Cleo goes to the hospital and um, the doctor comes up to her and says, oh, you know, you know, it's all going to be fine. And oh, the, the lady doctor said, I can't go in. And she says, oh, no, absolutely, you can. You can come in if you want. And he's sort of like, oh, shit. And it sort of exposes really what is the class antagonism, that there's this pretend care, but there really isn't. But it's as if it's just, oh, it's, it's men or the man is the issue. And of course, then we have the whole, us women have to stick together. I just, I hate that stuff. I hate that stuff. This is part of the self-flagellating because Quaron himself is a man and he's the director of this film and yet he directs a film which is all about how awful men are. Yeah, it doesn't solve anything. Could a woman have made such a two-dimensional film about gender? Yes. <laughs> it might have been slightly different, but absolutely. You see, that's so funny because <laughs> my instinct was to say, no, of course a woman would make it. <laughs> but I love the way I love the way you just said yes. I mean, of course, you're, of course, Helen is correct. So what's interesting is my <laughs> my desire to say no, right? Maybe it's a generational difference. Maybe I. That's, that's quite interesting. <laughs> I think I I don't know. I suppose at the very least, I I think there might be more. Hmm, I don't know. Like less um, chocolate box depiction of. Yeah. I mean, although he does depict the birth in this sort of way, or you know, there might be a bit more brutal biological reality if a woman directed a film that had these 
plot plot lines. I don't know, but that's just—I mean, again, just generalizing pointless. The right. birth, though, the birth was very. It was like oh, ooh, 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 done. You're like, well, that's yeah. not what births are like. Also, what? I really don't <laughs> think, even in Mexico in the early seventies, that they would keep the dead baby next to you, and while they were preparing it, I think they would not do that. I think psychologically, that doesn't make sense. Do they I mean? also do this thing where they she has to have stitches and she just sort of goes, oh, you're like, yeah, come on, come I, on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. But, but. Yeah. I, I think Helen is, of course, right that a woman could have made a film <laughs> that was just as two dimensional. I, I, ra- I, I raise the question because the motivation for Quaron is clearly self-flagellating. And, and I think that there is a, a guilt or shame, however you want to define it, complex at the root of this film. And that that's what results in this particular type of two dimensionality. And at least, at least a straight woman has to deal with the fact that she's attracted to men and that there's something interesting about men. That's very true. That is very true. It's funny. I was just thinking about this though, in terms of, because obviously we get so many, you know, female, many more female films or female perspectives. If there is one, whatever the fuck that is these days, um, we see so many female, directed horror films i actually can't believe it and it sort of annoys me a little bit because it's like women can do more than horror seriously you know um but just because women are are as inadequate as men they can do exactly the same a job as man it might be there might be certain things that are slightly different um but i'm thinking about certain things that i've seen that i think are very gender essentialist that happen to be directed by a woman and maybe it might be less blatant um there might be sort of more um like more ideological or papered over by ideology. I'm thinking about um, certain young women's films. But yeah, there are a lot of films, actually, Nina pointed this out. I don't know if you were alluding to this, that are like female films or female made by female directors that are like extremely messy and extremely sort of gross out, (laughs) extremely in your face, you know. And I wonder what that's about. But Yeah, I I suspect if a female director who had this kind of set of feelings about men would be more motivated by anger than by shame or guilt. Yeah, it it is funny that you're Helen's right there that horror does seem seem to be the go to. I mean, I'm thinking about kind of like feminist horror films. I don't know, going back to Teeth or whatever. I mean, Teeth's not that old, but yeah, where where it's like a way of dealing with resentment or anger, but you mutate it through the you know if you push it through horror, you can go somewhere obscene with it in a way like it's it but it's actually too easy to do that exactly this is it actually really annoys me because i think this is a financial reasons why women women end up doing horror a it's so much cheaper so much more can be made and you're you're guaranteed an audience because you have inbuilt people who just like the experience of watching a horror film so you get really really shit really really poor films made in the horror genre i mean there are other genres that you do but horror it's almost accepted that it's not a b movie and it's shit but it's a horror film but i think you're right that one is able to sort of go there and say things in a way that's really over the top that the subtlety of other genres maybe would be more difficult to do um but yeah that there are I would say more, many more horror films made by women now than men. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the um, actually another film um, with Cleo, which is Agnes Varda's Cleo Nine to Five, which is a much mm. more interesting and subtle depiction of class and being what you know what it means to be a woman. I think, um, but I yeah, it's uh, yeah, I don't know. And I mean, there are a few films from, I guess, Chantal Ackerman as well. I have a few thoughts about um, 
women in earlier epochs making films. Um, I think that almost I think things are fairer when there's no, when it's less, <laughs> when these sort of attempts aren't made to cat-handedly explicate or make fair the problem by certain interventions. And that actually those people like Agnes Varda is absolutely fucking brilliant. And she was working at a time where, you know, fewer women for various historical reasons were making film, but her films were made or she made those films because partly, I mean, many other factors, she's very, very good. And I think about um, in the 1920s, for instance, some of the most prolific and successful screenwriters were women. You know, and this was a time when there was no, it was just the way it was, you know, and if you made, there were certain conditions where, where things could be made in certain ways. And I just, I just think that where we think that we have this sort of like parity or whatever, it's just not really the case. And that often films are made for certain anti-political reasons to repress the contradiction of what's actually going on. Um, and you get these things that sort of speak to an ideological justification for the system at the moment that are actually crap and that then get promoted above things that are actually just women making good stuff. Yeah. And in thinking about, you know, when we say a film is made for ideological reasons, it doesn't necessarily mean that the film is being funded expressly as a propaganda project. It can just mean that you have some affluent person like Alfonso Cuaron who is trying to feel better about his circumstances and his past and therefore makes a film which is a rationalization or an apologia for a set of social conditions, right? And what makes the film seem different from more traditional pieces of propaganda is that in this case, it's done ostensibly as an homage to the maid or as a way of saying thank you or showing appreciation, right? So if you were to make a straightforward justification of the rich wife-maid relationship and you straightforwardly took the rich wife's perspective and you straightforwardly made a film about how maids, of course, are servile and not to be, everyone would condemn that. But if you are able to get the same message across in a way which shows love for the maid and treats the maid as an object of affection, then all of the same themes become permissible. And because most of the art world is made up of people like Alfonso Cuaron, of both genders, it is full of people who want to feel better about a situation like Cuaron's, who want to feel better about having been raised by a woman who was paid to be there. But this, but this goes back to the question of how to depict class well in cinema, you know, and this is something we've looked at a little bit you know, it, it's it's very hard, you know, to take it away from the sentimental and the personal to find a form that matches the, you know, the antagonisms and the abstractions with whilst also remaining watchable. <laughs> I mean, this is like the kind of Schoenberg Adorno point, you know, how do you kind of depict the kind of contradictions and horrors of modernity, you know, whilst, you know, and not trying to complete them, not not present a whole and sell back to you your own you know, misery or whatever. So, yeah, I, I was thinking, yeah, about those kind of, about those sort of class films and whether there needs to be, you know, how to, what, how to depict antagonism. I think that's why horror, that explains why horror, because if your primary antagonism is 
men and women are at war or that, you know, nature is evil and horrible and biology is your enemy then of co- or whatever, and that the, the relationship between men and women is fundamentally one of violence and opposition, then horror is the natural genre, right? Like it's going, like Teeth is, is a fantastic film in this regard. Um, and... But but to actually depict other antagonisms, so like the antagonism, I mean, this is why Blue Collar is interesting, because it tries to depict class via the antagonism of race as used opportunistically by mm-hmm. unions and employers. So, but, you know, to, I, it's, I've been reading Foucault this week, or teaching Foucault this week, so this is why I'm thinking in this like very binary way about the, the forms of war and, and how you can choose, in a way, different periods pick different terms so whether it's the battle of the sexes or race war or class war or and how those things kind of you know intermingle um and how cinema then tries to to cope i suppose it's interesting because i used to really not like ken loach very much because i think to, to to go back to this idea of representation that often representation becomes fetishization that is not actually a problem because it doesn't it's not just a one-to-one um you know this is absolutely going to function in the way that we believe is the right way to function because often the way that we write we believe is right is actually wrong so i think a lot of his past films i found you know obviously they weren't but depicted me but like fetishizing and, and patronizing but he did a very good film sorry we missed you about an amazon delivery driver and it was absolutely brilliant and i feel like his more recent films Maybe because they have this antagonism against a corporation or something that's that's less personal. Um, it's and it's almost that the thing we talked about. We did an episode Benjamin and I on the Florida Project um, a while back about you know it's it's depicting it less in sort of like individual this person versus that person, but in systemic impossible terms can be quite good. But often as well, you know, some of the best films about the antagonism of class. Are films that are about the wealthy, you know, that they can actually, you know, just a direct representation doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be better. Like, for instance, um, Joanna Hogg's films, which are all about upper middle class people or aristocrats, I think, and she comes from sort of, I think, a semi-aristocratic background herself, do a really good job of depicting class antagonisms and also the misery and melancholia of, of, you know, (laughs) comfort, quote unquote. But it's not just by having a certain person on screen that we're going to solve the problems. Yeah, a lot of rich people seem to think that a sympathetic portrayal of a poor person suffices for emancipatory content. Mm, yeah, but that's the kind of angel temptation, like in this film. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. the t- you know, the really, uh, yeah, the the true depiction would depict people in all of their horror. Really, you know, mm-hmm. it would it would depict not necessarily in a hyper-realist way but I don't know like if you think about Zola novels or something like the kind of reality of of (laughs) peasant and lower you know working class life and you know the death and the misery and the kind of turmoil and Mm -hmm. you know and yeah I don't know to it's 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 right how to not angelicize people I think part of the trouble is that in a lot of that stuff there is some kind of struggle that the workers engage in that can be the drama of the film, right? And part of the trouble with now is that for the most part, unions are dying and workers are not engaged in any form of meaningful struggle. So what you would depict is the failure to 
achieve meaningful struggle, which I think Blue Collar does relatively well. But it's pretty hard to depict a realistic political struggle for workers because no such struggle currently exists. And for that reason, what you instead get is a kind of cathartic, uh, a, a cathartic version of that struggle in which the, the worker just murders the boss. Yeah. Right? Like in the Solange film or in Parasite, right? Because there's no other kind of resistance which feels remotely realistic mm-hmm. or satisfying. We just go with, well, you could just murder the boss. <laughs> But there is another kind of um, film is obviously a lot of, you know, dramas about conflict and characters and oppositional, you know, modes colliding with each other. I was thinking about La Sommoise, one of my favourite solar novels, and it, it's not, it depicts the people who are poor in uh, multidimensional, very messy ways, which I think is is really good. But one thing that film also does, <laughs> not to be like really cheesy about it, is it evokes emotion. Like it's almost like, emotional curation in the audience and um what the florida project did really well is it used the emotion resulting from intractability and impossibility really well but of course yeah it's not exactly that these people um have something to fight and i think this is this is the issue as well maybe this is why sorry we missed you worked so well is that the issues are so insidious now they are so corporatized, you know, so well hidden by ideology and aesthetics that the enemy is not embodied by one person. We talk so much about corporations or organizations that we've worked for where nobody's mean and everybody's nice and nobody knows where to go when there's a problem. So we do ha- maybe, you know, at the moment that that is a good way to depict it is something like the Florida Project, where it's about the tragedy of the impossibility of the situation. But it definitely isn't the same sort of like Independence Day overcoming kind of stuff. Um, Or you just get historical films, maybe. Right. At the end of the Florida Project, all the little girl can do is run. Yeah. It's awful. It's so sad. And and there's no good ending. Either she isn't found, in which case she is lost, or she is found, in which case she is separated from her mother. So all she can do is struggle in a in a futile way. Actually makes me cry even thinking about it. My God, that film is so amazingly good. Yeah, the Florida Project is something else. That's a really good one. But yeah, you're right. Like the it is I hadn't thought about it. At least at least the Todd Solon's film and at least Parasite, it doesn't uh repress the contradiction in this way. You know, one thing that I really like about Parasite is that the nicest characters the sort of most angelic, aka boring and non-human characters, are the uh, are the is the is the lady of the house. I can't remember what the character's name is, and the working people are really, really difficult and messy and quite bad, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hadn't thought about this fact that both the Solon's film and Parasite end in a murderous, like a comedic murderous catharsis, which is never really good. You know, does it happen in real life? Like, no. Rarely. In a way, you you know, it's like, how can you sort of depict the system, as it were? It's like, how can you depict the, you know... I suppose it's like at the end of Fight Club where they blow up all of the credit card towers. That's in a, at least, in a way, a, an attempt to materially depict abstract mm. relations, right? It's like, what if we could eliminate everyone's debt by blowing up the credit card tower. You know, it's actually kind of an interesting thought. And I remember that thought at the time. I remember people thinking, because debt was started to become this huge question for people, like 
as a political question. I mean, it's always been, right? But, they, you know, there was a way in which debt was basically propping up everything and, you know, it became the focus of, of, of thought and in, in some ways political thought and the debt jubilees and these kind of campaigns. And, yeah, and, and there's, there was something just very satisfying about that, like, cinematically. It's like, yeah. you know, but what would it mean? Like, in the internet age, let's say if you wanted to blow up the internet you know i mean this is sort of it is it's so decentralized it's that there's not like an internet block that you could just take out and and what would it even achieve yeah it's in that category of the kind of slightly less cathartic ending where the film ends in a crime of some sort against the boss so it may not be that you murder the boss but you commit some kind of crime you steal something you break something you you burn something you commit arson Right. But most films that try to do this have to end with a crime because what else can the person do? They have no legitimate or realistic means of resistance apart from criminal acts. Um, Talking about the the criminal acts in Todd Solon's and in Parasite, just about, yeah, the, the worker killing the boss. Obviously, it's much more common that the worker is either slowly killed by the boss by, too, you know, by uh, withholding of resources or too much exertion or whatever, or actually killed. Um, and there is a case that really, it wasn't that, you know, massive in the, in the British press a few years ago about a French au pair that was murdered by her London employers and burnt in the garden on a, bonfire and you're just like that yeah that's the opposite but probably the more realistic outcome um of those two films the tragic reality well we're getting right up to about an hour so i think we're going to move over and do the b-side our theme today for the b-side helen you named it what's the theme so uh, i very much enjoy uh, looking up property on the internet real estate in american dubs and um it's got less exciting in the last couple of years because the market i enjoy looking up has just got so out of hand because obviously you know fantasy relies on the very like slight appearance of reality in your mind and if it's totally impossible you just can't have any like fantastical relation you can't li- libidinally invest in something that you know it's just like well this is never ever going to happen um and prices have I mean, literally tripled in the last decade in the Los Angeles market. And I know in um, the United States as a whole, it's totally ridiculously got out of hand. If we are still within capitalism, like there's certain aspects of capitalism. I think, you know, we're obviously within a capitalist system. But how, how have, has the bubble not burst? Like how do we have this level of inequality that is unprecedented? without the whole system imploding based on the fact that workers have to have enough money to buy the products that are made by the system. So I'm kind of, maybe you guys have insight into this, what it is about our contemporary economic system that is even like physically, materially possible. It doesn't make any sense to me. That's what we're going to talk about, how it's possible that the whole thing still keeps on going. We're going to do that on the B-side, and if you follow us on Patreon, you can get that B-side and hear the rest of that conversation. So, in the meantime, thank you guys so much for listening. We appreciate you. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.